Welcome to the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS soundbites. Hi, I'm John Sheldon, publisher of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. In the next 30 minutes, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our latest issue. Let's get started. The use of medicinal marijuana is growing, with over 23 states having legalized use and more considering legalization. Despite this growth in legalization and use, there is limited research into the efficacy in many of the disorders for which medical marijuana is said to treat. This article by Dr. Yarnell reviews the existent literature regarding the use of medical marijuana for the treatment of PTSD. Most studies are primarily observational or correlational with a notable lack of large-scale randomized controlled trials, making final conclusions difficult. However, previous studies suggest that marijuana use decreases PTSD symptomatology, and neurobiological studies in both humans and animal models suggest a neurobiological rationale for this observation, which is further explored in this article. Potential issues regarding possible correlation with problematic cannabis use are also addressed, although the directionality of this finding is unclear at this time. Wernicke encephalopathy is a neuropsychiatric emergency with high morbidity and mortality that can result in permanent brain damage, long-term institutionalization, and death if undiagnosed or undertreated. Wernicke encephalopathy is a clinical diagnosis made on a syndromic level. At present, there are no biomarkers that can be used to formulate or confirm the diagnosis. If suspected, it is critical to initiate immediate treatment with intravenous thiamine, as orally administered thiamine is never adequate for preventing permanent brain damage. The purpose of this continuing medical education article is to heighten clinical awareness of Wernicke encephalopathy and shed light on its diagnosis and treatment, which are often inconsistent due to unclear diagnostic criteria and limited practice guidelines. An update on management is presented, and several case reports and a quality improvement project from the author's hospital are described. Clinicians are generally familiar with borderline personality disorder, which many recognize as a severe personality dysfunction. However, borderline personality disorder was initially investigated in mental health settings. In these types of settings, a familiar cluster of symptoms repeatedly emerged among patients with this disorder, namely relationship difficulties with others, mood instability and dysphoria, and overt self-harm behavior. While patients with borderline personality disorder in mental health settings clearly attempted and completed suicide, the majority seemed to engage in non-suicidal self-harm behavior such as cutting oneself, hitting oneself, or burning oneself. Therefore, the historical conceptualization of borderline personality disorder anchored around this well-identified cluster of symptoms. In contrast to mental health settings, 
Clinicians in primary care settings and general medical settings are encountering another phenomenon, the difficult patient. The difficult patient encompasses a number of behaviors, but two behaviors are particularly notable, namely unsubstantiated pain syndromes and somatic preoccupation. For the primary care clinician, the present review indicates the need to reformulate the concept of borderline personality in the primary care setting. While such patients may present with the traditional symptoms of borderline personality disorder, many will present with unsubstantiated chronic pain syndromes as well as somatic preoccupation. The next area of research will be to determine effective treatment for these individuals. The incidence of obesity is reported to be higher among depressed individuals than in the general population, but the nature of the relationship between body weight and depression is complex. Weight change during treatment with desvenlafaxine has been assessed at doses of up to 400 milligrams per day. However, the relationship between baseline body mass index, or BMI, and weight change during desvenlafaxine treatment has not been determined. In this study, McIntyre and colleagues assessed the effect of baseline BMI on efficacy and weight change in adults with major depressive disorder treated with desvenlafaxine, or placebo, in a pooled post hoc analysis. Adults with major depressive disorder were randomly assigned to placebo or desvenlafaxine 50 mg or 100 mg in eight short-term double-blind studies and one longer-term randomized withdrawal study. Change from baseline in 17-item Hamilton Depression Rating Scale total score at week 8 was analyzed in normal overweight and obese subgroups. Weight change was also analyzed in the BMI subgroups. The authors found that desvenlafaxine doses of 50 mg daily and 100 mg daily effectively reduced the symptoms of depression regardless of BMI at baseline. In all BMI subgroups, Desvenlafaxine was associated with significant weight loss versus placebo over eight weeks, but no significant differences longer term. This study was sponsored by Pfizer. Reducing functional impairment in patients with major depressive disorder is critical for optimizing treatment outcomes and achieving long-term wellness. Recent studies on major depressive disorder have quantitatively assessed improvement in functional impairment using mean changes on rating scales like the Sheehan Disability Scale or SDS, but none to date have assessed individual patient outcomes. In this post hoc analysis, the authors qualitatively assessed changes in functional impairment by evaluating categorical shifts in severity on the SDS subscales, work school, social life, and family life home responsibilities. Data were pooled from five placebo-controlled studies of levomilnasopram extended release in major depressive disorder to determine the proportion of patients that shifted from more severe to less severe SDS impairment 
categories. A significantly higher proportion of levomilnasopram ER than placebo-treated patients improved from more severe to less severe impairment categories on all SDS subscales. Depending on the subscale, 48 to 55% of levomilnasopram ER-treated patients with moderate extreme functional impairment at baseline improved to mild or no impairment, compared with no more than 40% of placebo patients on any subscale. Almost half of levomilnasopram ER patients improved from marked extreme to mild, no impairment on all the subscales, while only about one-third of placebo patients did. The authors conclude that treatment with levomilnasopram ER was associated with improvement across functional impairment domains measured by the SDS. This research was supported by funding from Forest Laboratories. The Montgomery-Asberg Depression Rating Scale Self and the Beck Depression Inventory 2 are commonly used self-assessment instruments for screening and evaluation of depression. This study by Wickberg and colleagues assessed the correlation between these instruments in the primary care context. These instruments are traditionally used within psychiatric wards and hospitals, although most patients with mild-moderate depression seek treatment within the primary care setting. Data were collected from two ongoing primary care randomized controlled trials performed in Sweden. The study included 146 patients, 73 patients from each trial who had newly diagnosed mild or moderate depression and who had assessment with both the Montgomery-Asberg Depression Rating Scale Self and the Beck Depression Inventory 2 at primary care centers. The two instruments showed good comparability and reliability for low, middle, and high total depression scores. The authors conclude that the Montgomery-Asberg Depression Rating Scale Self may be used as a rapid, easily administered, and inexpensive tool in primary care and has results comparable to the Beck Depression Inventory 2 in all domains. Bipolar disorder is affected by variables that modulate circadian rhythm, including seasonal variations. There is evidence of a seasonal pattern of admissions of mania in various geographical settings, although its timing varies by region and climate. Variables such as age and gender have been shown to affect seasonality in some studies. In this study, data on monthly admission patterns for mania at a general hospital psychiatry unit in Pondicherry, India, were collected from 2010 to 2013 and analyzed for seasonality and seasonal peaks. The effects of age and gender were analyzed separately. Admissions for mania showed a seasonal peak during the rainy season and prior to the onset of summer. Age and gender appeared to have some moderating influence on this seasonal pattern. 
Seasonality and bipolar mania may be found even in regions with low annual variations in temperature and day length. The effect of seasons on mania is complex and is modulated by a variety of variables. The authors conclude that their study is consistent with earlier research findings, which showed a greater degree of seasonality for mania in men. It is possible that climatic and individual variables interact to determine seasonal patterns in bipolar disorder in a given setting. Psoriasis is an immune-mediated chronic disease with a genetic background that involves skin, nails, and joints. The incidence of psoriasis varies from 2% to 4% depending on geographical location, ethnic background, and environmental conditions. Recent research has shown that psoriasis is a systemic inflammatory disease with extensive systemic implications. The objective of this study was to explore the severity of psoriasis, dermatology-related quality of life, and psychiatric health of psoriasis patients with reference to sociodemographic, lifestyle, and clinical characteristics. Consecutive psoriasis patients from skin clinics of three tertiary care hospitals in Pakistan between November 1, 2012 and December 31, 2012 were assessed in this prospective cross-sectional study. The final sample included 87 patients who were evaluated for severity of psoriasis, dermatology-related quality of life, and psychiatric morbidity and assessed on 23 sociodemographic, lifestyle, and clinical variables. Of the 23 variables, the severity of psoriasis measure was significantly associated with education and habit of drinking alcohol. The dermatology-related quality of life measure was significantly associated with disturbed eating and the psychiatric morbidity measure was significantly associated with hair disease, current income, and disturbed eating and sleeping. A statistically significant correlation was found between all three measures. Psoriasis has an immense impact on the life of patients and common comorbidities in psoriasis, including coronary heart disease, depression, cerebral vascular disease, and metabolic syndrome. All patients with psoriasis should be screened for psychiatric ailments. Liaison between dermatologists, primary care physicians, and psychiatrists is essential for complete management of psoriasis. Patients with psoriasis should be evaluated for comorbidities and referred for consultation and treatment. If you have ever treated an adult patient who is acting like a child, or if one of your patients has thrown a temper tantrum when he or she was under distress, then this article from our rounds in the general hospital section should prove useful. The authors present the case of Miss A, a 26-year-old woman who was admitted to a general hospital for worsening agitation, auditory hallucinations, and an inability to perform activities of daily living. During her psychiatric evaluation, Miss A clutched a stuffed animal, 
threw pillows, cried uncontrollably, and knocked down her IV pole. The authors recommend that clinicians always explore and assess regression in patients, since ignoring such behavior usually exacerbates it. Medical, neurologic, or psychiatric disorders can cause a patient to exhibit regressive behaviors, and behavioral, pharmacologic, and non-pharmacologic interventions should be explored to manage regressive behavior. As publisher of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders, it gives me great pleasure to announce the launch of a state-of-the-art online job platform to serve our readers. The CNS job market is now open for business at cnsjobmarket.com. Our goal is to serve both job candidates who seek career choices within the CNS arena and employers who seek qualified health care professionals. Just as you rely on the primary care companion for CNS disorders for trusted content, now you can rely on us for career opportunities and recruitment needs. The CNS job market employs the latest innovative technology to make searching for the right job and the right candidate easier. All services such as resume posting, advanced searching, social media integration, and job alerts are free to job seekers. And for employers and recruiters, we offer a range of multimedia advertising opportunities, outreach options, and candidate matching at affordable pricing. Visit us at cnsjobmarket.com where skilled healthcare professionals and outstanding opportunities meet. We are excited to offer a digital flip page edition of this issue of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. This turn page format will give you the feel of holding a print journal in your hands while allowing you to seamlessly navigate from article to article. We hope you will take a look at our digital journal as we think you will like it. Please visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com for new postings and the opportunity for continuing medical education credit, as well as many timely case reports, a new entry in our psychotherapy casebook section, and special web-based interactive content. Thanks for joining me for this summary of offerings in our current issue of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me for the next installment of the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS Soundbites.